You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. As of 11.59 p.m., there are 79 positive cases of coronavirus in Indiana. This comes after the number of those tested increased to over 500 people. So far, two people have died from COVID-19. These numbers are courtesy of the Indiana State Department of Health. A Bloomington Hospital patient tested positive for coronavirus according to an email sent from IU Health to the Indiana State Department of Health. It was confirmed Thursday that an Owen County resident tested positive for COVID-19. It is unclear at this time whether it's the same case confirmed by IU Health. What we do know is that the Indiana State Health Department updates the coronavirus numbers every morning at 10 a.m. This morning, there were zero reported cases of COVID-19 in Monroe County. There was one reported case in Owen County. The health department's list is based on county of residents, according to a source at the communication director's office in the state health department. According to a press release from the county health department, quote, Despite recent news reports, Monroe County has no confirmed cases of COVID-19. The Indiana State Department of Health, ISDH, released its daily COVID-19 case count earlier today, end quote. The press release also said, quote, No Monroe County cases have been diagnosed at this time, but we expect that to change as this outbreak continues, end quote. All in all, there was a reported case of COVID-19 in a Bloomington hospital but the resident likely lives in Owen County. All Indiana schools remain closed until at least May 1st, according to the Indy Star. That announcement came from Governor Eric Holcomb yesterday afternoon. He also announced standardized testing to be canceled in schools. This includes iStep 10 and iLearn. Indy Star reports the state asked the U.S. Department of Education for test forgiveness, but Indiana has yet to receive it. Indiana High School Athletics Association canceled the boys' basketball tournament due to the outbreak. Spring sports are left with an uncertain future. The Hoosier State has not announced plans to cancel school through the remainder of the year. The Monroe County Commissioners approved ordinance appropriations supporting COVID-19-related assistance and emergency relief. Commissioner member Lee Jones described the ordinance in their March 18th meeting. This ordinance ratifies the declaration and finding that emergency relief is necessary. It authorizes the appropriation of $25,000 to be used for COVID-19 relief through the Rainy Day Fund or through the infrastructure of the Sophia Travis Community Service Grant funding. It relaxes procedures and formalities the authority delegated by the council and the commissioners to their presidents. The commissioners may release additional funding as may be deemed necessary, appropriate and necessary. And it relaxes enforcement of zoning ordinances to waive building code requirements. County attorney Jeff Cockerell said the county's state of emergency would be extended through April 1st with the ordinance. He said relief funds would also be provided to the Hoosier Hills Food Bank. Cockerell said statutory required deadlines for board meetings would be waived. He described the relaxed zoning ordinances. When we talk about relaxed zoning and building, uh, that is only for uh, times when we're or for people who are issuing humanitarian aid or, or things of that nature. That's not. Um, I need to extend my house. That's a worthy 
501c3 and we need additional space to due to this emergency to help more people we're not going we're going to waive those requirements for that for this period of time and and we'll have to we'll deal with the ramifications of that once this emergency ends commissioner julie thomas said the ordinance can be extended or rescinded county commissioners also approved a request to use food and beverage tax funds for support of food and beverage establishments cockerel presented the request Um, What we have here is a request to the Food and Beverage Advisory Tax Commission uh, to allow for the use of up to $200,000 of of the county's food and beverage uh, tax fund for support of local uh, food and beverages establishments and other businesses that promote uh, tourism, which is kind of the requirements under the state code for the use of this fund. Um, outside the limits of the city of Bloomington, which is where we where this money was collected from, um, we intend to uh, to figure out the best use of this. And one of the things we want uh, people who fall into those categories of, of businesses to email to the county at fbsupport at co.monroe.in.us, kind of what. Their, what their concerns are, where their struggles, where are their issues at, so that we can formulate a, a response to that uh, that is appropriate. Um, we had talked about different scenarios of what we would look at, it, but at the end of the day, we, we felt we needed more information to make sure that this was uh, useful and that this would help preserve a lot of the businesses that we have uh, concerns about. Cockerell said the request advises the city of Bloomington to take similar action. Thomas said funds are not promised, but encourages businesses to apply. So we're looking for um, local, locally owned small businesses. um, And we're we're not making promises here because we don't know that, A, the the food and beverage group is going to approve it. Uh, Hopefully they will. Um, But we also don't know how much we're going to get in requests. Uh, But we're looking at um, restaurants bars, uh, small businesses that support economic tourism, and we are going to define that very broadly um, for this initial round. We don't know what the needs are, and uh, that's what this initial email is for. What is needed? um, What kind of help can we offer? Um, This is a good use of this money, I think, um, and um, we we know that there are a lot of businesses that are on the brink, and especially with these new rules regarding um, food and dining establishments, um, drinking establishments, we have to do what we can to help those wage earners that are going to be impacted first and the business owners that are also going to be impacted, but also for other supportive industries out there. There's a lot out there. Thomas encouraged the city to cease discussion of an income tax increase during the state of emergency. She said the Food and Beverage Tax Advisory Committee can approve the use electronically. No Space for Hate has launched a COVID-19 mutual aid resource for Bloomington, Indiana. Their goal is to, quote, foster a network of collective solidarity that allows us to care for the most sick and vulnerable people in our community and find strength together in order to push back against the broader social narrative of individualistic self-reliance and preparedness, end quote. 
The group is accepting volunteers to deliver groceries and other supplies to residents homebound in their local neighborhoods. All deliveries are no contact. Those delivering goods are given five precautions to follow. The group enforces regular sanitation of vehicles and hands, as well as leaving items on a surface rather than handing over bags to avoid direct contact. Anyone performing deliveries is asked to take their temperature before going out on a delivery. Any questions can be emailed to mutualaidmoco at gmail.com. The coronavirus outbreak coincides with an election year. The Indiana primary is now moved to June 2nd. Indiana has joined other states like Kentucky by pushing back its primary date from May to June. The announcement came at 11.30 a.m. today. It was given by Governor Eric Holcomb, Secretary of State Connie Lawson, as well as a leader from both the Indiana Democratic and Republican parties. All dates corresponding with the primary election will be moved back by 28 days. Governor Holcomb stands uncontested for the Republican primary. As for the Democrats, Woody Myers will likely face Holcomb in the general election for governor. According to the Indy Star, Myers is a millionaire venture capitalist and former Indiana Health Commissioner who once made a name for himself defending AIDS victim Ryan White. The Democrats are looking to find a challenger to incumbent Republican Congressman Trey Hollingsworth for the 9th District seat for the U.S. House of Representatives. Again, the Democratic primary will now take place June 2nd. The recommended practice to vote is to cast an absentee ballot. Normally, there are a set of procedures that make it difficult to cast an absentee vote. This includes having a disability or a workday that lasts over 12 hours. However, qualifying for an absentee ballot will be more readily available due to the COVID-19 outbreak. According to IN.gov, in order to vote absentee by mail, you need to complete the application for absentee ballot and mail it to your local county election office. If you can't send absentee ballot applications by mail, you can email an application to election at co.monroe.in.us. You can also vote in person starting 28 days before Election Day at locations designated by the county's election board. The Monroe County Government Election Central is located at 401 West 7th Street, Suite 100 in Bloomington. Its phone number is 812-349-2612. Primary Election Day is now June 2nd from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Local restaurant Buffalooies announced starting March 16th it will begin a free lunch program to any Monroe County Community School Corporation student who qualifies for a free lunch. The restaurant said it wants to help ease the burden any way they can for the county's most vulnerable children. Buffalooies will deliver these meals to the doorstep for students at no cost. The restaurant recommends those in need should send a message on Facebook to receive a free lunch. United Way of Monroe County and nearly 30 local organizations are partnering to launch the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund. Their aim is to support immediate economic sustainability and basic needs in Monroe, Owen, and Greene counties in light of the pandemic. United Way said the fund will be launched with $250,000 committed by individual donors and key partners. Bloomington Health Foundation offered to double the impact of donations with a matching grant up to $25,000.
United Way reports all partners involved agree its top priority is to ensure capacity in the human services sector. This makes sure individuals and families in need are supported during the pandemic. More specifically, the fund aims to 1. Sustain critical operations and levels of service of area nonprofits. 2. Develop safe, temporary residential programs for at-risk individuals currently unsheltered in mass shelters or in group homes. 3. Fund temporary staffing or volunteer mobilization efforts in response to loss of volunteers critical to daily operations. 4. To increase capacity of local food security and basic needs systems in order to meet anticipated needs. For more information, contact Executive Director Efrat Pfefferman at 812-334-8370, extension 15. If you are in need, call 211 to connect you to necessary resources. Indiana University President Michael McRobbie postponed spring 2020 commencement. For more on IU's response to COVID-19, we turn to WFHB correspondent Jake Jacobson. Last week, Indiana University President Michael McRobbie announced through an urgent message that face-to-face classroom teaching would be suspended for two weeks after IU's spring break, which was scheduled from March 15th to March 22nd. Since then, Indiana University's response has escalated, moving all classes online for the remainder of the spring semester, as well as closing all resident halls, including off-campus housing leased through IU's residential programs and services. In a statement released Monday, President McRobbie announced additional actions the university will be taking to help prevent the spread of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. Starting March 30th, all classes across all Indiana University campuses will transition to virtual learning for the remainder of the 2019-2020 spring semester. Indiana University will also be extending the length of spring break by one week to March 29th. According to McRobbie's statement, quote, This additional week will provide more travel flexibility for all students given the stress on domestic and international travel systems. It will additionally give faculty time to prepare for completing the semester via virtual teaching, end quote. To comply with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's recommendation to avoid gatherings of 10 or more people, McRobbie announced that IU will close its resident halls and on-campus housing. Students affected are asked to be moved out of housing by today, March 20th, giving students five days to complete their move out. The official IU Bloomington Twitter account provided more information Monday. This information encourages students who had already left campus for spring break not to return to campus housing. RPS will ship any essential items, which include medical equipment, academic books, and computers, left in rooms to students' permanent residence. As of now, IU has no plans to cover moving vendor expenses beyond these essential items. Students who do not wish to move or cannot move during this time may petition to stay on campus. According to the IURPS website, each petition will be reviewed individually, and emails about the status of petitions will be rolling out starting today and continuing into next week. If a petition is denied, there will be no opportunity to appeal, and students will be expected to either schedule a move-out time or arrange for an approved moving company to pack and ship their items. Students who are forced to move off campus will receive a prorated housing refund for the remainder of the semester.
McRobbie also formally announced the cancellation of this year's Women's and Men's Little 500 bike races, which draw crowds as large as 25,000 fans each year. The possibility of holding the event at some future date beyond this semester will be reassessed at a later date, says McRobbie. More information on Indiana University's rapidly evolving response to the COVID-19 pandemic can be found at coronavirus.iu.edu. For WFHB, I'm Jake Jacobson. The city of Bloomington is working to demolish the abandoned Griffey water treatment plant after about 24 years of closure. Sydney Foreman has more on the demolition. The Griffey Water Treatment Plant was built in 1925 to provide water to the city of Bloomington. The plant collected water from Griffey Lake and was treated to become safe drinking water for the community. The plant later closed in 1996 when Bloomington's population outgrew the size of the Griffey Lakes Reservoir. The building has been sitting abandoned since. In 2019, the Indiana Daily Student reported, quote, The Griffey Water Treatment Plant was decommissioned for 23 years, but is costing the city hundreds of thousands of dollars in cleanup because of mercury released by trespassers, end quote. The city of Bloomington Utilities discovered mercury contamination at the site first in 2017. Along with mercury, the site has also been known to contain asbestos and PCB contaminants. James Hall is the assistant director of environmental programs at the Bloomington Utilities Department. He said mercury contamination is most likely due to vandalism. The building would get vandalized. People would break into the building and vandalize um, and certain equipment in the building, like um, electrical switches and some of our the old flow meters had mercury in them that helped them operate. And when people would vandalize those, uh, mercury would get onto the ground. And we went in and we've cleaned it up. But there is still some low levels in the like the concrete of the building. And then there were also some piping that like would move mercury around to those different instruments. And um, that those were broken. That's kind of where some of the stuff on the outside came from. Hall said, today... There is still mercury contamination on concrete surfaces in the building and in the soil around the building. He said no mercury is leaking from the plant and the contaminants in the soil are stable in the ground. In July of 2018, the City of Bloomington Utilities implemented strict security at the treatment plant site. The city's news release from that time of implementation reads, quote, According to the World Health Organization, Exposure to mercury, even small amounts, may cause serious health problems, particularly in utero and early life. Mercury may have toxic effects on the nervous, digestive, and immune systems, and on lungs, kidneys, skin, and eyes. The public is urged to stay away from the Griffey facility to protect their health. Trespassers on the Griffey plant property may be subject to arrest and hazardous material decontamination procedures, end quote. Therefore, keeping the public out of the plant is for their own safety and a speedy cleanup. Hall spoke about some of the security enforcement. Um, we continuously upkeep the fence. We've had a fence around it the whole time and people just cut it down and it's a, you know, a, a regular six foot fence with some barbed wire at the top of it. Uh, but since July of 2018, we've had 24-hour, 24-7 security at the site. Uh, we've had multiple lights installed um, to make sure we're keeping people out of there. 
There is a strong enforcement to keep community members out due to health risks, but Hall claimed there are no serious environmental impacts. However, soil contaminated by mercury could grow vegetation to be eaten by animals, which then has potential to enter the food chain, causing ecosystem contamination. Hall said the city is working with the Indiana Department of Environmental Management and the Environmental Protection Agency on the federal level to clean up the contamination. Um, like I said, the, salt, uh, the mercury isn't uh, moving through the soil at all, and that was our only concern uh, with um, outside contamination. There were some old transformers there that had PCB oil, and those got cleaned up, I believe, either in 2017 or 18, early 18. I'm not positive on the date of that, but nothing. Like I said, we've installed multiple uh, monitoring wells around the facility, and we haven't seen any contaminants move there. So uh, once we complete the demo of the building and the soil excavation, uh, IDEM and EPA is going to be satisfied, and we'll do confirmation sampling again once all that's taken up. All that stuff is taken up. We'll do sampling again to confirm that we've got all the um, contamination that was there. Hall said all contaminated soil will be dug out and shipped to the appropriate hazardous waste disposal facilities. The city is also working to dispose of PCB contaminants in the plant. Um, the PCBs that's remaining in the building and causing issues with disposal um, is actually in the paint. It's not a liquid. Um, back at that time, IDEM told us this, and when we tested the paint, um, they said it's fairly new development. Um, people were using PCBs in paint to help. It's called a plasticizer. It helps the paint like be on curved surfaces and still stick and stay on there. Item kind of keyed us into that, and so we started sampling all the piping and other uh, painted material that we had inside the building. Hall said the specificity of contamination will determine where certain parts of the plant will be sent for their appropriate disposal processes. So there's there's different kinds of waste. So there's what's called Tosca. Um, Toxic Substance Control Act waste, so that that's where just like things that are have PCBs in them, um, we'll take that to Rochdale to Heritage Environmental Landfill, uh, that's in Rochdale, Indiana. Um, so any material that has just PCB contamination, uh, that will go there, and then any material that has PCB and um, RICRA um, Resource Recovery and Conservation Act um, material in it, um, that will. That will go to uh, Belleville, Michigan, to a facility owned by U.S. Ecology. They're a hazardous waste disposal facility, uh, company as well. Hall said the city plans to return healthy soil to the area and plant native vegetation once demolition is complete. He said the city will also maintain ownership of the water treatment plant property. The reservoir isn't big enough to provide potable water to the city, but it is large enough that we could still hook back up into the system to provide fire suppression for if we lost. Um, water um, in a city. And we've talked about putting a concrete pad that we could put what they call a package plant. It's basically a plant that comes in a, like a cargo container. Some people call them connexes uh, that houses pumps and some treatment uh, for water that you would, we would just, we'd put um, piping over into the, into the reservoir and we'd run it through that package plant and be able to pump it right into our system to provide fire suppression. Hall said, unless the city sees a fire suppression emergency, the space is to remain lush with native vegetation and contaminant-free. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. IU Health reported it has made additional updates to temporary visitor restrictions. Beginning Sunday, March 15, 2020, no visitors will be permitted at Indiana University Health Hospitals. 
Cade Young interviewed Dr. Robert Stone at IU Health about coronavirus. This is part two of that interview. What is the local impact so far of coronavirus? We have no idea. Uh, we are flying blind. We have screened a few people in Bloomington that have been negative, but unless something happened today that I didn't hear of, we're still very limited in in the amount of testing that's being done, and therefore we just don't know. It could be that there's a lot of cases here, uh, but we sure don't know about them. You know, a commonly asked question right now is: Should we cancel our upcoming trips? What are your uh, What are your thoughts on that for people that are looking to go on spring break trips and whatnot? Should they Should they cancel their trips given the outbreak? Well, it depends on what your trip is. If you're going to go backpacking or someplace where you're not going to have a lot of contact with people, then I don't see any reason to. And as long as we don't get to the point where the airports close, but there's a risk of of not being able to get home. You know, that's a real trip. Everything is changing every day. A colleague of mine flew to Montana a couple of days ago to go skiing. Between the morning he left and the afternoon he arrived, they closed the ski areas down. And so they just turned around and came back. So there's a lot to be said for just staying home and staying in. I don't think it makes any sense to think about going someplace where you're going to go to a busy beach vacation because, um, first of all, the beach people are going to be avoiding the beaches, but second of all, it just turns out to be this is not the time to do anything that's going to involve you with being in contact with a lot of people. Absolutely. And that kind of leads to the next question is, what should we do to protect ourselves and our loved ones? Okay. So those are two really interesting and very different questions, mm-hmm. protecting yourself and protecting your loved ones. Um, so to protect yourself, you, you need to keep a distance from people. You need to do frequent hand washing, uh, all this stuff that we've we've known for years. I mean, I've been telling people for years, don't touch the handrails um, uh, in a building and uh, don't touch your face. Mm-hmm. Um but now it's we're beginning to understand widely that how how important those things are. Um, so to protect yourself, I think everybody's kind of getting the idea. Be careful about touching your face. Be careful about touching surfaces. Be careful about getting close to people. You want to try to limit the spread of the virus. And you don't necessarily want to get sick. Now, most young people are not going to get very sick if they get the virus. But the way this COVID-19 virus is, is that it's really bad for people who are older, 60s, 70s, and 80s, particularly people who have any chronic disease, like even just high blood pressure, certainly diabetes, those people can get really, really sick. And so I think it's really, it's our it's our civic responsibility to try not to become a carrier and a spreader of the disease, even if we're not, for good reasons, not particularly worried that we're going to get really sick with it. But this is you know, this is something that people in the United States haven't really had to face ever, or at least for a long time, since 1918 maybe. But I think we, we really owe it to all of ourselves, and particularly to our loved ones, who include our parents and our grandparents and our friends who may uh, you know, have a, a disease as simple as asthma, where they take low doses of cortisone inhaler or something every day, and suddenly they become high risk. And you may not even know your friends who are on medicines that help them be healthy and happy, but also have some effect to inhibit their immune system, and and they could be at high risk. Even if you don't have any contact with your grandparents, 
we got to do what we can. This this virus is going to move through our communities and our country, and it's probably not going to go away until at least 50% of people have been exposed to it and then developed immunity, and maybe more like 60 or 70%. So it's going to be around for the next year or so, maybe a year and a half. And so if we can slow the spread right now, then we won't get to the situation like they've been in South Korea and in Italy, where so many people get sick so fast that they end up uh, needing intensive care units and uh, and ventilators to breathe for them. And then they don't have enough. And I saw a headline just a couple hours ago that the virus is spreading fast enough in New York City right now. I didn't read the whole article. So mm-hmm. <laughs> the headline said, um, um, fear of a shortage of ventilators in New York City. So um, a friend of mine uh, is a physician um, who grew up in Italy, and um, she has a friend who's a physician in Italy and, uh, you know, talks about how things just changed over the space of a few days um, in Italy when suddenly the virus just started spreading really rapidly and they started running out of ventilators and people were really sick and dying. And so I hope that doesn't happen here. I don't think it's going to happen here, but we can't be so arrogant. We can't have so much hubris that we think it can't happen here. You've been listening to WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Jake Jacobson, Katie Young, and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Service. Our features were produced by Sydney Foreman and Kate Young. Our engineers today are Sydney Foreman and Kate Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Kate Young. For WFHB, this is Kate Young. And I'm Sydney Foreman. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. Send inquiries to news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for KiteLine, a program amplifying the voices of those within Indiana's prison system, coming up next on WFHB.